Here's what I find interesting about money. The more you talk about something, the more you recognize how much you value it, right? So if you look throughout society, you start to watch what are the things that people talk about, you'll notice what are the things that are important to them. So if you hear me talk about soccer, you would go, well, that's kind of obvious. Russ talks about soccer a lot because he really likes it, right? So there's certain things that if you just kind of evaluate someone's life, the more they talk about it, or the way in which they talk about it reveals its importance to them. So I started thinking about what are the ways that we tend to talk about money, and it struck me that we give money all kinds of different names. Have you thought about that before? So here's what I want us to do. With a neighbor, with someone next to you, start to make a list on your bulletin, wherever you're taking notes, and come up with as many different names for the term money as you can think of. For example, cash. Cash would be a different way of saying money, but you're saying essentially the same thing, all right? So start with a friend next to your neighbor, or by yourself, jot down as many as you can come up with, okay? Go. All right, you sound like you're getting a little quieter. Either you're like really getting into it, or you've kind of run out of ideas. Um, Maybe some of you are still jotting them down, but just keep track and see how many of these uh, you can get. I'm just going to I've created a little list. Uh, By no means is my list exhaustive. I'm just trying to come up with different words that I've either heard or uh, that are in songs or different ways of using the term. So here's a couple. Ready? You can mark them off your list. Number one, bacon. The bacon. Right? We're fascinated with bacon. That's why I think we've, like, termed this money bacon. Uh, Bank. Got a lot of bank, right? Uh, The Benjamins, the Bills, the Bones, Bread, Bucks, we're still on Bs, we obviously have issues, right? There's a few others, Cabbage, the Cabbage, the Cake, the Cash, the Cheddar, the Clams, the Coin, Currency, the dead presidents, it's true, the dime, the dough, the ducats, have you heard that term before? Got a lot of ducats. The ends, so the ends, Um, this is a new one to me, I had to look this one up. The fetty, have you heard that term before? The fetty, basically it's like you're making it rain and so... It's like confetti coming down. That's right. So some of you are walking around with a lot of fetti, right? That, evidently, it's a term. The, uh, the fivers, the funds, the green, the greenbacks, the G's, the grand, the guineas, the jack or the jacksons, uh, the lettuce, the loot, the lucre. Have you heard that term before? It's a biblical term, the filthy lucre, right? It's an old term, don't worry about it. Um, the moolah, you've heard that one before, right? Uh, the notes, the pesos, the scratch, the shekels, the smackers, the stacks, the ten spots. You can see we're going somewhere with all this, right? The wad. Speaking of a wad, I just recently uh, learned this, that um, in rap lingo... There's a new term called the bands. So if you have like a, 
a rubber band around your big stacks or your big wads, then you're carrying a bunch of bands. So, new term. And then uh, my favorite, the wampum. <laughs> Does anyone refer to their money that way? I found that one online. That one's awesome. You can see we have a problem, right? Uh, you could describe it that way. We talk about it a lot. It fascinates us. Money is, in some ways, uh, really central to our culture and our understanding of people's status, the way they live. Uh, if, if we talk about it so much, we create words for it, we sing about it, obviously it's ingrained in our culture. Just this week, I uh, clicked on CNN, was uh, checking out the news, and came across this picture. Uh, it was headline, one of the main uh, topics of the week you could click on. And uh, it was the richest person in all 50 states. You can see October 15th. Uh, 2014 was posted. Richest person in all 50 states. Uh, just so you know, Washington wins, right? We can thank Bill for that. Um, but the, the, the statement, this is how the whole article starts. Being rich is great. Being the richest person in your state is the greatest. Our culture is very consumed with the idea of wealth. Very consumed with the idea of riches. And that riches is status, and then all these terms, and all this wealth, and all these ideas are very, very central to our culture. This morning, we're going to look at the book of Proverbs, and uh, its take on finances. And it struck me this week that the person that we're going to get most of our information from uh, is a person that would make Bill Gates look like he was a pauper, right? The richest, one of the richest men to ever live, Solomon. The scriptures describe him as also being one of the wisest men to ever live. And he has a lot to communicate to us about uh, this idea of wealth or finances. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to ask for your help. Uh, I want to kind of prove a point right at the beginning as we look at Proverbs. And uh, there's a ton of passages on finances, wealth, richness, uh, the amount of um, money you have. And uh, I want to break it into three categories. So we're going to break this room into three groups. If this is group number one, this will be group number two, and then this will be group number three. Okay? Group number one, what I'm going to encourage you to do, there's going to be passages. If you guys, this group, can start on the left column and look up those passages. All those passages relate to one kind of bigger idea related to this idea of money. Second group, you take the middle passages. Some of you start at the beginning. Some of you start at the end and meet in the middle. And then uh, the last group take the last passages. And I'm going to get some feedback from you. What is the big idea or the big gist of these passages uh, as it relates to money? Okay? I'll give you about two minutes to do it. We won't probably get to all the passages, but uh, it'll give us a head start here. Okay? Okay, we'll start with this, uh, this first group. So give me just basic feedback, big idea. If you were to summarize those passages together, what, what is uh, the book of Proverbs communicating about wealth? Don't put those up yet. Give them a second to, to think about it or share. What is it communicating? Okay, good. Wealth and wisdom go hand in hand. What else? Okay, smart to save up. Okay, the idea of legacy, passing it on to generation to generation. Good. Well, not you yet. We'll get to you. But keep that answer. Hold on to it. It was good. 
Any any final thoughts in this section? Okay. So you, one big idea, if you look at, uh, throw that up there, again, the, the slide, yes. Okay, you see that the book of Proverbs is really favorable toward wealth. That's one perspective, right? So you have uh, the, the blessing that comes from God to the rich, or a good man leaves inheritance from generation to generation, and the idea of legacy, or the crown of the wise is their wealth, that the Bible is speaking, or Proverbs is speaking, in, in a general way, and it's saying that eh, wealth is positive. Okay, it's good. Now we'll shift to the middle section. Daniel. Okay, wealth gives false power. Other concepts that came to the surface. It's fleeting, okay? What else? Okay, so difference between rich and wealth. Okay, good. Any other thoughts from this section? Okay, so you have first section, wealth generally positive. Second section, you can throw this up, that the rich rules over the poor, so it can be enslaving, that it can be threatening, it can corrupt us on equal weights, it can be something that is fleeting. It's something that, that causes us in many ways to perish. So this idea that wealth is really good, but also wealth is really dangerous, or richness is dangerous, or having too much could be a problem. Okay, So you have two contrasting ideas in the same book of Proverbs. Then you come to this third section. Throw out a few things that stood out from your reading. Okay, wisdom is important, but not as important, I mean, riches is important, but not as important as wisdom, okay? Someone else? Good, character is more important than wealth. Any others stood out? If you go through that list, flip the next slide, you'll see that the fear of the Lord is better than wealth, that uh, wisdom is better than wealth, that relationships, better is dinner of herbs, where their love is, than a fattened ox where hatred is. The one person in the first service said, what I learned is that uh, vegetables with love is better than uh, meat with hatred. Right? That was the big takeaway. Um, that integrity, that a good name, reputation, all of that stuff is more important. So, over here, first section, wealth is good. Second section, it's dangerous. Third section, it's important, but not nearly as important as all these other things. Right? There are many ways in life to be rich, one of the least of which is money. Okay, So you get this idea that Proverbs is really broad in the way it talks about wealth. Really broad in the way it talks about riches. And so today, you're not going to get, obviously, a definitive word if, if Solomon alone was spreading all the ideas pretty wide. Um, but what my hope is, is to focus on one specific passage that I think kind of meets in the middle. So you have these three big ideas, and then we're going to try to focus in on one passage in Proverbs 30. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. My hope this morning is to talk about one truth, to ask two questions that we can begin to discuss as a community in small groups, and then offer up maybe three practical steps. Okay? So that's what we're going to try to accomplish over the next few minutes. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 through 9. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen. It says this, Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. 
Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Okay, crazy little prayer. Proverbs 30. A couple verses. This man communicates this focused prayer around two big ideas, right? First one, remove from me falsehood and lying. The second, give me neither poverty nor riches. We could, we won't, but we could go with a quick show of hands. How many of us on a regular basis have been praying that prayer? I mean, I might be praying, to be honest with you, that keep falsehood far from me. I want to be a person of character, of integrity. I don't want to you know, speak ill of others. But, man, in our culture, to really pray the prayer... Give me neither poverty nor riches. It's a challenge. So I want to look at it through these three things. One truth, two questions, three practicals. First truth is this. How you handle your money is highly spiritual. How you handle your money is highly spiritual. It's obvious from this passage for in, in a couple ways. But in a straightforward approach, many of us have heard that before, right? That how you handle your resources, what you do with it, greatly affects your life. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It has implications on your life. Not only that, it has implications on the kingdom. Meaning that the kingdom expands, or in some ways we could argue contracts, based on our use of money. Last night I was at the Young Life Banquet. I had a fabulous time. And it was interesting when uh, Stuart Sondland, for those of you who know him, got up and he... Uh, presented this award. And the award was to someone who had a pretty significant legacy in uh, young life regionally, right? And so he tracked the influence of this person. So this person led this group, and um, in that group there were these people. They came to know Jesus. They affected these people who affected these people. They went all over the world and were doing amazing things. And like he's tracking the lineage or the impact of one person's life on others. And it was in my head all night. I just kept thinking about it and thinking about it. And then we got to the part where it happens at every fundraiser, right? Every banquet. Where they're like, now's the time where we want you to support our ministry. We want you to believe in what we believe in. We want to do great things in this city. And then they asked about resources. And the thought triggered in my mind that wouldn't it be cool to do like a, the lineage of economics related to your giving? To say you gave X amount of money which impacted X amount of students which then their lives and their lives and their lives. So out of that, God did this. That's why we say that our giving is a highly spiritual matter. The very act of giving away resources or using your money for the kingdom can impact thousands. And so we know that this is a real spiritual topic, a really important topic. We notice it in the passage for two reasons. One, it's a prayer. He's asking of God this prayer. You can throw the verses up there again. He's saying, God, I, I want so bad, not that one. That, yep. Two things I ask, deny this not from me. Like he's praying this. And it's interesting, he prays 
his bucket list. You've heard the term bucket list, right? The bucket list is what happens, you want to do it or accomplish it before you kick the bucket, right? And it's these things we dream about, aspire to. And he says, there's two things that I'm aspiring to. Number one, keep falsehood far from me. Two, God, if you could give me anything, if you could give me anything that I ask for, give me neither poverty nor riches. And he's essentially saying, please, 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 neither poverty nor riches. He's desiring it, longing for it. The second thing that struck me about why this is so spiritual is because of his motivation for why he's asking that. He requests it, and then he says, here's why I'm requesting this. And the first reason why is, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? He says, I don't want to be in a place where I would be guilty of maybe denying you. Guilty of not having my attention directed toward you. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, there's this passage that talks about it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We talked about that. Just after that section, it says this, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Notice the words. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord. That's the exact same as the prayer. Many people believe that he's referring back to this idea. Lest you become full, lest you have everything you need, the kind of house you need, the car you need, the clothes you need, uh, the, the, the gear you need, whatever it is, unless you have everything that you need and then find yourself not needing God. And it's not that we just forget God. I don't think we like wake up one morning and like we totally forget God. I think we get to the place where we just don't feel like we need Him anymore. Like He isn't the one that we run to when something goes wrong. I mean, think about it for a moment. Let's say... Um, you drop something, it broke, or one of the things that you have at home uh, just got to the place where it needed repair and broke down. Maybe you have kids and they came to you and the item they have is now in three pieces and they're you know, showing it to you and you're like, ah, what's the first thought that comes to your mind when that happens? I mean, besides like swear words or whatever. What's the first big idea that comes to mind when you lose something? Is it? Man, God, I need you. Or would it be something along, more along the lines of like, man, should I take that from savings or checking to replace that? Or is the question like, oh, you know what? I, th- I think they have that on sale at Costco right now. That should work out well. Or, oh, why don't I just run to the garage and get a spare one? Like, what are the things that run through your mind when you lose an item, or when you're in need, is it directly to God? Or are you so full, am I so full, that I don't need Him? That I don't have to depend on Him? I I think this is what he's getting at. 
The second idea that he gets out in that passage is he says, lest I become full and forget you. And the second one is, or that I'd be so poor that I would desire to steal, and in doing so, dishonor your name. In both cases, in both cases, his concern is the name or the glory of God. In both cases. He's saying, what I want more than anything else is neither poverty nor riches because I want the name of God to be famous. I want Him to be known as the provider for me, or I want Him to be known in great reputation, not because of any ill I've done that would ruin His reputation. I mean, that's a pretty bold statement. It should make us ask questions like, what do people think about God because of how I handle my money? That if my money is a reflection on God in some way, what are people general, what was their general thought? I think we have to wrestle with those kind of questions. What is what do I purchase? What does that say about God? What does my lending say about God? What does my giving say about God? All of that should become a part of this idea that this one truth in this text, how you handle your resources, is highly spiritual. Second idea, two questions. So we talked about one truth, how you handle your money is highly spiritual, two questions. The, the latter part of that verse, and you can put it up again, it says, give me neither poverty nor riches, but feed me with the food that is needful for me. In another version it says, give me neither poverty nor riches, but only give me my daily bread. Now, I had a bunch of questions come to mind when I read that section throughout the last several weeks. What does he really mean by that? What is he trying to get across? What is he really praying for? And I don't have great, great answers. I mean, if I was Jesus, I could just give you a straight statement, and then I would say, follow that, and you'd probably be shocked about what I'd say. Um, because Jesus says lots of shocking things, right? I mean, all the time he would do it. He would say something just straight, and then they would be like, wait, can anybody get saved then? Like, what, what is going on? Like, like, the disciples were always in confusion. Jesus did this about money almost more than anything. I mean, he talked about money more than he talked about heaven and hell, and when he talked about it, he often made bold statements. Statements like, um, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to go through uh, to heaven. And you would imagine the disciples are going, what are you even talking about? What does that mean? Or he would say things like, store up your treasure in heaven where there's no rust, there's no moths, there's no thieves. Don't store it here. And you, could, I can, you can almost see their wheels spinning. Or he would tell them stories about these managers who would like hire people early in the day, and then they'd hire people later in the day, and then they'd pay them all the same thing. So he said crazy stuff about money. Well, I'm not Jesus, so I can't say crazy stuff about it, but I can ask maybe some crazy questions that begin to have us ask, what does it really mean to live into a prayer like this? What does it really mean to live into what God desires with our resources? So, here's question number one that we can start to wrestle with. Does God want us to only acquire what we need? Does God want us to only acquire what we need? 
So let me give a little flashback to the Old Testament. We'll just do a quick little Old Testament to New Testament idea. You have at the very beginning, God creates everything. He declares everything good, beautiful. And then he says that everything that I've created that's good and beautiful, like I'll establish for you, right? I'll give it to you. And in fact, I'll give you dominion over all of it, right? We tracking? Then he says, you can name the animals with me. You can be stewards of it. You could see everything. You can own everything. But he's really saying that you're stewards of it. See, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. You're just kind of borrowing it. It's yours for a little while. And so with that framework, he begins to describe the Old Testament to us. You see these snapshots of how maybe we're supposed to handle resources or what God has entrusted to us. You get to the passage in um, Exodus. Okay, you don't put it up there yet, Julia. But you get into Exodus and you have this uh, story of the Israelites. They're moving. They're moving throughout life. Um, they get to this place where they're in the wilderness. Everything is kind of uh, different for them. Life is not what they want. They start arguing and complaining. And Jesus says to them, Hey, listen, I will provide for you everything you need. You'll get up in the morning and manna will be there. At night you'll get meat. I'll meet all of your needs. Don't worry about it, but follow my instructions. And so this is what he tells them. Uh, he tells them in... Uh, verses, or Exodus 16.4 So God said to Moses, I'll rain down bread from heaven. The people will go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. Then he says, each one is to gather as much as he needs. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. And then no one is to keep any of it until the morning. Now at first... Everyone obeyed the law. Everyone went out, they got what they needed, they brought back what they needed, and they used what they needed, and it came in every day, and it was going really well, right? And then the passage goes on to say this. In Exodus 16, verses 17 and 18, it says, The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, he who had gathered much did not have too much. And he who gathered little did not have too little. Each one gathered as much as he needed. So you have this, not everybody's gathering the same amount. That's not the point. The point is everybody's gathering what's needed. Everyone's getting what's appropriate. And so God says, when you get up, go out, grab what's needed. And everything was going smooth until they got to the point where they stopped doing that and they started gathering more. Do you remember that part? So what they would do is they would go out, they would gather what they were supposed to, and then they'd go, well, what if God doesn't come through tomorrow? Let me get a little extra. They would take it, they would go back, they would eat what they needed for the day, everything would be fine until they would see that everything that they had started to rot, had maggots, was worthless. It's interesting, when you take what you need, everything's fine. When you begin to consume more, right? You see this picture that he's saying, no, 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 no. No, it doesn't, it's not good. It doesn't work that way, right? So he's he's wrestling, we're wrestling with this idea, but you go, but that's an Old Testament idea. Let's move to the New Testament. So we get to the New Testament, and what you see is Paul uh, asking us questions about this same thing. He says in 2 Corinthians, uh, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Just pause there for a second. So Paul starts off and he's saying, I'm going to give you some instructions about your wealth or your resources or your money. And I want it framed around this idea that Jesus has done everything for you. That He became poor for you so that you might become rich. That the very heart of the Gospel is that. That you've been given much. And so he says, that's the framework for you to understand this next section. Skip one slide forward and it says this. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Do you see where he's going with this? He's appealing from the New Testament back into the story of the Old Testament and saying, listen, he who gathered a little had everything he needed. He who gathered much had what he needed. And the way it works is that he who has much at one time shares with he who has little. And he who has little that gains much shares the other way, right? That there's this idea that we take what we need. We take... What we need. But when we hear equality or words like that, we start to kind of freak out a little bit. So the question to wrestle with in small group, the the question to start to to ask is, what, what is God's desire as it relates to our needs? Maybe the point he's making is about needs, not just about much or little or one omer or how much or how do we know. It's about have your needs been supplied and what does that look like? So wrestle with that topic. Here's the second question. What does it mean, only my daily bread? So in the passage, it says it's written in two ways. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but only what is needful for me. In another version, give me only my daily bread. Now this is, again, an Old Testament idea that comes up in the New Testament. Maybe you've heard this phrase before. Um, Lord's Prayer, give us today our daily bread, right? Many people believe Jesus is referring back to this prayer. He's saying in your prayer, in praying for daily bread, pray this. Pray this. Pray that your needs would be met. And so, here's a question. Another question to wrestle with. Is, what does God mean, or what does this passage mean when it comes to the idea of only our daily bread? Now, I'll ask it in a, maybe a more challenging or provocative way. Ready? Is he praying, Lord, help me to live paycheck to paycheck? Is that what he's praying? I think you have to wrestle with that idea. Is he saying, Lord, help me live paycheck to paycheck? Does he mean that? Does he not mean that? I think what it does, or what it should do, is cause us to begin to ask the question, what is poverty and what is riches? Right? Because if, if he's saying, give me neither of those, well, then we have to really start to define those. So we'll take just a moment. If we're going to redefine riches, I think we have to start not with an American mindset, but a world or a global mindset, right? And we're still even only defining it based on 2014, not really how the Old Testament readers would have understood it. But in 2014, if you make $25,000 in a given year, you're in the top 90% of all earners in the world. If you own a car, 
or even if you like drive one, you're in the top 3% of all earners in the entire world. I mean, that's crazy math to begin to play with, right? That, that we probably shouldn't read, be rereading this from the perspective of what does it really mean to be rich? We are. We are. So then asking, well, what does poverty really look like? Well, is poverty paycheck to paycheck? Or is it not? So really beginning to ask ourselves these questions because here's what the crux of it is. Don't get so caught up in the minutia of is it this or is it that? Is it? Here's the point. Do you live in dependence on God? That's what it comes down to. Do you live each day financially with your resources in a place of a dependence on God? Like where, if he doesn't come through, you're going, man, this is going to be tough. Because you've been generous enough? Or because you're in a state where you find yourself saying, you know, I really need to lean into these things? Or I'm going to make these intentional choices? I think we have to, we have to ask, what does that really mean? Does God in some way want us to Here's another crazy idea. Does he want us to limit our earnings? In American culture, we would go, no, 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 you don't do that. That makes no sense. Just just go back again through Scripture. He tells us to limit our day. He tells us to limit our week, Sabbath. He tells us to limit what we glean in the fields, meaning don't glean all the way to the edges. Why leave some for others? Don't do all of the work. Do most of the work, right? So you have all these like crazy ideas about Resources, And I think we have to ask the question, what does it mean for us to live on daily bread? What does it mean to live in dependence? What would it take for you to pray for more opportunity to live in dependence? Because that's what he's praying for. God, help me to be more dependent on you every single day, financially. So I want to give you three practicals in closing. Okay? So obviously, those were intended to create more questions. They should... Be things that you're going, okay, wait, I need to jot that down and really wrestle with it. But here's three practical steps you can start to take as you wrestle with those two bigger questions. All right? Practical number one, evaluate what you need. Evaluate what you need. It's a hard, hard thing to do. Because we have wants and we have needs. We have necessities and we have luxuries. And we are grateful enough to live in a place where we can have both. And many people don't live in a place where you can just have luxuries, but we do. So the question becomes, how do you evaluate your need? I think you have to evaluate it with friends. You think you have to evaluate it with others. I think you have to evaluate it in a prayer. But it starts by just evaluating even your culture. Greg Boyd says this, It's hard to deny that capitalism is the best economic system around, but for all its advantages... Capitalism has one major drawback that kingdom people, that's us, kingdom people need to be concerned about. Capitalism requires people to stay perpetually hungry for more. The undeniable truth is that capitalism runs on greed. When you evaluate your need, do so through the lens that we as a society are causing each other to perpetually desire more. To never be satisfied. To always be in want. Out of that culture, 
start to then say, well, what does it look like to just live according to need, not just want? Okay? Number two, be crazy generous. Be crazy generous. In Proverbs chapter 21, verse 26, it says, The righteous gives and does not hold back. What a cool description. That the righteous, the people of God, give and do not hold back. Wow. Or another idea, that whoever is generous to the poor is lending it back to the Lord, and the Lord will repay him. Another crazy idea. I mean, these honor God with the first fruits. The first things you have, give out of that, not out of what's left over. Be crazy generous. There's a passage in, um, in Malachi chapter 3. And you've heard this one before. Uh, God is talking to the people and He says, Hey, you're robbing me. You're stealing from me. And they're like, No, 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 no. We're not doing that. And then He goes, Listen, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test. All throughout the Bible, God says, Don't ever put me to the test. Don't put me to the test. I'm God. Don't. Don't do it. Don't put me to the test till he gets here. And then he says, test me. Test and see that if you're not crazy generous, that I won't open the heavens and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. That I'll actually repay so that you can continue to bless. That you give so much and that you're crazy with it that I will then overwhelmingly give you so that you can continue to be crazy. That's what he's alluding to. That test me on that. So I'd encourage you. Try it. Try it. Be risky. Give something when you, where you go, man, if I give this, it's going to hurt. Or if I give this, I don't know if I'll make this Whatever. Or if I give this, there's no chance I'll ever get that. Do that, and then see what happens. I'm amazed when you do things like that, how often you'll hear testimony. The testimony isn't like, I gave it, and oh, geez, God didn't come through again. That's never the testimony. Every single time. It's stories of how God provided, or came through, or doubled it, or did something amazing. Because he's asking for us, promising that if we test him, something will happen. And Voskamp put it this way, we're not giving what we're called to give unless that giving affects how we live. It affects what we put on our plate and where we make our home or hang our hat and what kinds of threads we've got on our back. Surplus giving is the leftover you can afford to give. Sacrificial giving is the love gift that changes how you live. Because the love of Christ has changed you. God doesn't want your leftovers. God wants your love overtures, your firstovers, because He is your first love. I mean, to think about that practically, like that your giving should affect maybe the house you live in. That your giving should affect the car you drive. That your giving should affect the vacation you go on. Otherwise, you just kind of like throw in some leftovers. If you're given out of the first fruits, the challenge would be then the rest of your life is affected by that. So just imagine this year, maybe you get a 1% increase, 2% increase, 3% increase. What if this year when you got, if you get an increase this year, 
Let's say you got one. What if every percent you get, you give? I mean, last year you lived off of whatever it was you were making, then you get your 3%, then just give it. Right? And live off what you lived off the year before. Really, instead of our standard of living increasing, what if our standard of giving was increasing? What if we lived into a place where we're always testing God and seeing Him as worthy of meeting our needs? Last little idea. Go into it together. If you're going to live into this idea of neither poverty nor riches, if you're going to try to begin to pray that prayer and ask God to alter the way in which you understand, see, live into your resources, then I would encourage you to go into it together. What I mean, and we talk about this all the time around here, the importance and the power of community, that there's power in numbers. Trust me, if you try to do some crazy, generous giving, and all around you, you see people doing crazy, generous getting. I mean, 97%, the average is 97% of everything you earn, you spend on yourself. Is about the standard average in America. To think about that. If, if you're trying to give, give, give. Let's say you're giving 25% of everything you earn away. And everyone else is keeping 97%. It gets really hard really fast. Right? So what I would encourage you to do, get people around you that also believe the same thing. And then say, let's do this together. Because in doing it together, there's power. And then you can share stories with one another. And then you can begin to go, wait, so like I gave this much last year and God met all of my needs. What if I like risk a little more? And then what if I got a little crazier? And what, oh, there's more needs. And what... And then all of a sudden, your entire posture towards money is different. The entire intention in which you live changes. I would encourage us to be people that choose neither. Neither poverty nor riches. But to live into what is it that we need. And may we live a life of dependence on God. Let's pray.